Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, once again, our friend, game designer from Disruptor Beam, David Heron. Hello. And we also welcome back our buddy, Rob Davio, designer of Risk Legacy and now Pandemic Legacy. Hello. I'm the Legacy Guy. Before we dive into today's topic, uh, Rob, it seems like exciting times for, uh, for, for legacy games these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did one back at Hasbro, the Risk game, and we, I think I was on the show talking about it maybe four years ago, and um, that caused like a bit of a stir, and now with Pandemic, it has just blown up in terms of feedback and, you know, just people talking about it, mostly positive, which is just fantastic um so i'm i'm trying to pretend that this is all normal yeah right it's just like yeah yeah i did something and and it's going well right i don't really know what to make of it so i'm just working on other projects and and sort of um appreciating it for what it is yeah it's definitely fun to have a reason to go back to playing uh pandemic for me that's that's kind of the upshot of this for me is that a game i really enjoyed but it kind of you know figured it out uh, I've got yep. a little stale at this point, sort of back in rotation. So so that's pretty cool. Uh, so I want to talk today about something that's, I think, you know, sort of relevant to uh, particularly your job, Rob, but something that's kind of relevant across a lot of strategy gaming, particularly anything uh, that has a multiplayer component. And, and that is what to do with players who are losing, uh, how to get them back in the game or at least make sure they're they're still having a good time because something I've I've noticed certainly is that a lot of like single player PC computer games <clears throat> sort of have to be designed so that it's kind of telling the story of the player's triumph. Uh, a, lo- a lot of them are meant not so much to defeat you, not so much to put you on equal footing uh, with a lot of your adversaries, but to give you adversity uh, on your way to glorious victory with the. With, with the side effect of a lot of these games, if if you're not doing well, uh, if you're starting to fall behind, there's not a whole lot of reason to keep playing them uh, sometimes, uh, especially because they're sort of designed to follow an, an arc and everyone sort of follows a power curve to victory. And if you're not on it, uh, you're probably going to lose. That probably doesn't work in, in board game design, but it's something we, we, we see come up a lot in, in on the PC side. And I kind of want to just talk to you guys about those two problems of whether or not of how to create opportunities for players to get back in a game that they've started poorly in, Mm -hmm. but then also ensure that someone who doesn't really have a snowball's chance in hell still has a reason to keep playing and isn't just sitting there watching other people have fun. Right. Meaty topic. You know, I'll kind of start. Um, One thing that I've always talked about when designing games, you know, back at Hasbro was something I learned from Craig Van Ness, a, a co-designer, um, on a lot of things I worked on, was uh, we always just called it the catch-up feature, right? If you're down and you're out, but you're still playing, what what line of thought can you have, no matter how implausible, that makes you feel like you've got a way to get back into it, right? And I, we always tried to put that into a game, which isn't to say, like, you could do it or you were even likely to do it, but you could run through in your head, you know, if I draw this card and I do that and I get these two people to make this mistake, then maybe, you know, maybe I'll get in this or I'll get out of last. That you sort of shifted your metric of what victory was and there was a path to do it. Now, it almost never worked out. 
mm-hmm. because you're losing, right? You get yourself mm-hmm. in that position. Um, but what we didn't want to do is have a positive feedback loop where the person who's winning just starts winning more, unless you're talking about Monopoly, which is the whole path to victory conditions. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and some games don't have it at all, like Scrabble. If you're losing, it, sorry, right? You're just losing. Spell better, play better. Um, and then there's a lot of older games which don't address this at all. So it's a relatively modern way of thinking. And you have to be careful as a designer not to, at least in my mind for the games I design, not to have it become, what do we used to call it? Like we used to joke and call it socialist poker, mm-hmm. right? Like let's just split the pot equally every time, right? Because it's like a participation trophy for being in the round. Mm-hmm. Um, uh- go ahead. Yeah, I just uh, you use the term positive feedback loop, and I just want to sort of talk talk you know, for for the listeners. Um, what 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 that's sort of a uh, I guess it's a little inside baseball term, and, and simply it just it just means that in games when actions or events are not independent, um, the the action that a player takes in uh, can meaningfully affect uh, points after it's been made. Um, I think it's probably for. Uh, uh, game players, we see it in, in economy games, right? It's sort of when when the first part of the game is about building an engine and then the second part of the game is about exploiting that engine. Um, we all know that if you mess up building that engine, you're not going to be able to participate. Oh, uh, and I said, oh, in this particular case, when I was talking about a, a positive feedback loop, uh, I'm talking about where a player who starts winning gets to win more or win faster. Right. So the classic case is Monopoly. You get properties, which leads to you getting more money, which leads to more property to more money. And then the people behind don't really have any uh, rational way of being able to catch up. Um, And so when designing a game, you want to encourage winning, but somehow make it that it doesn't lead to more winning. And if possible, you know, it's nice in an elegant way to sort of put sort of almost like a a tax on them or some sort of. Governor. So as they start winning and they reach that higher level, it gets harder to stay there or harder to move forward, which lets the people who are behind sort of, try, you know, catch up. And that's always tricky to do because people don't want to feel like they were just sort of given the win. Right. But there's, you know, there's a lot of little things like the person who's losing might go first in a round or last in a round or get a little extra money or be a tiebreaker, you know, something that makes them feel like or, or actually gives them a chance to sort of, you know, get back into it a little bit. So I'm curious, like when you guys think about ways to accomplish this, what are what are some games you look at uh, that do a good job of uh, sort of keeping someone from walking away with the game, from from having that sort of from having that sort of virtuous cycle uh, as as it goes? Well, so, so I I, I want to just sort of put it out there is that I think actually positive feedback feedback loops are actually like this important tool and. While you you know you certainly don't want the scenario where someone says um, checkmate in forty moves and then the game ends, but if someone says checkmate in two moves, that's pretty all right. <laughs> and so like like it's uh, positive feedback loops are a great way to 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 end a game, especially in something that's going to be a spectator sport. Um, a ways. So, so, so then to answer answer your question is I'm actually even going to go outside of um, strategy games and board games is I like Street Fighter. So, 
in Street Fighter, uh, after about Street Fighter 3, but particularly in Street Fighter 4, there's this concept of like a a super bar or an ultra bar. And basically, Mm -hmm. this is just this this meter that will fill up that becomes this resource and the player can can use it in a number of different ways they can fuel uh, more powerful versions of their special attacks and if it's completely filled they can unlock unlock uh, unleash their character's ultra move and this is this really powerful thing how does this plan come back well one of the the main ways that that super meter gets um filled is when a player takes a hit um uh, so what that means is instinctively the person who is is losing, who's getting hit more often, is going to have access uh, to this to this ultra move. And why do I think it's a great way? Well, two things. One thing is um, the player that is ahead can also fill it up. Usually, there's some like really like technical ways that they can gain access to this resource. Is it parrying? Is it doing something? But typically, it's it's high skill, high risk behavior that, if done improperly, uh, can be punished by the other player. And so here's the, and I think this this word punishment um, mm. in in that terms becomes really important because when you look on the other side, why is it great? Well, unlike a game like Mario Kart, which says like, hey, if you're losing, we're just going to give you, we're going to make your car go faster, and we're going to give you better items. What um, what Street Fighter does is it gives the losing player an opportunity to do a risky move, to hit this ultra combo and eventually and, and maybe come back. But the thing about the ultra moves is typically um, they're a little bit telegraphed. When that ultra move, when that ultra meter is full and you're losing, you know the player is looking for that opportunity. And if they fail, if they if they miss, if they whiff, if they miscalculate, they typically leave the player wide open and because they've been losing it exposes them to this moment where the trailing player can be can can be coup de grace right and so it's this last ditch roll of the dice that can also facilitate the completion of the match oh that's yeah that's actually a a really great example uh i i had never because i don't play street fighter so i never fully understood uh how that bar bar was filling up uh okay so so the so so the leading player is actually encouraged to either demonstrate really impactful mastery in which case you know Mm -hmm. they were always going to win uh or they're encouraged to maybe play beyond their safe zone and not only create opportunity and it creates opportunities but then also if they start landing blows the, the player getting the crap kicked out of them still has the opportunity for that yeah, ultra comeback. That's which is, really cool. Which is really cool and it sort of brings up this 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 thing that I I can't think of many games that do it and that's this idea that's saying um well we're not going to avoid this idea that like uh, we're not going to tax winning. We're not going to uh, retard your progress. So just because you are winning the race, we're not going to make you carry a weight. But instead, like in Street Fighter basically says to keep staying ahead, to maintain, it requires you playing in a more risky way. Um, and that, therefore, the comebacks aren't achieved by um, using gifts that the game system gives you, but by the player that's trailing their ability to sort of exploit the mistakes that the that the winning player continually has to make. Um, I, I wish I had some more examples. I can't think of any. And... I, so yeah, well yeah, they're they're all in there. The one that always comes to mind when I think of this is the game Power Grid. Uh, right, 
Right, and Power Grid is very good if you're trying to really sort of analyze this because there's a lot of little steps in Power Grid, and I play it just infrequently enough that I can't tell you them off the top of my head. We should explain but what I, Power Grid is oh, yeah, sorry. because Power, I, I love this game, and I was actually going to bring it up, so I'm really happy you're, you're, you're okay. getting around to it. Yeah, Power Grid is a uh, is a board game uh came out uh, actually 11 years ago now that I look at it, and uh, there, you're basically playing a company i guess you're you're trying to power different cities right so you're building and and buying different types of power whether it's coal or wind powered or uh i think uranium is the is the nuclear one and then you have to get the materials and you know you're sort of managing a series of various small economies to make sure you have the the right connections and the right grids and the right resources and and it kind of goes around and there's a lot of um sub steps to a turn and all I remember is some of the sub steps go from the person who's losing to the person who's winning, and some of the steps go from winning to losing. And it's very transparent that when you play it, these are done so that the person who's losing has an advantage in every step, right? They're either bidding less or they get first crack at the market. Um, I love the game, but I always find the transparent nature of the ascending order, descending order to really, it's like you're showing how the trick is done, right? But it's really good if you want to see in action what we're talking about when you play Power Grid. It's like, why does this one go this way? Why does this one go that way? And when you look at it, you realize that all of them are a way to sort of try to keep the person who's winning to have the least favorable uh, option in any given step. Yeah, and I think there's there's a couple things I, I like in, in how that's done. One is it also has this um, dynamic of it introduces this element of when do you want to make your move, right? Because like if you if you're sort of in the hunt, there are times I've definitely sort of taken a knee for a round because I actually wanted to be where I was right where I was sitting in the in the picking order uh, to mm -hmm. to to make bids and uh, to to get to the resource market. So I didn't want to I didn't want to change any of that. Uh, but there were also you know so so there's this there's this decision introduces of okay, I'm in a position now to maybe move up the ladder a little bit, but am I actually better off if I continue sandbagging and, you know, risk other people getting things before me, but I know better things are coming up in the future, so I can, you know, hold my fire, basically, and then possibly make a big jump a little bit down the road. Uh, so that's that's one thing. Something else that happens in in power grid is that i think power grid does a good job of it gives you a lot of stuff to focus on within your own uh business uh, let's call it that like you're in territory what 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 have you uh so there's lots of things to be thinking about like how you're going to fuel your various uh your various power plants what kind of moves you want to make into expanding your holdings or upgrading your your facilities better power plants different fuel sources that kind of thing and that creates a lot of even if you even if you're if you're totally terrible even if you're garbage it still feels <laughs> like you're doing cool stuff and the game's going to be over before it really dawns on you uh <laughs> that you're totally host and that you're you, that someone else is is really walking away with it and i think that's that, that's not a bad thing I, I think seven wonders does this a little bit too which is uh sort of a uh, it, it's a it's a card game. Uh, what do we, it, let's get, let's call it a drafting it, game. It, it is. It's a drafting card game. You're you have a hand of cards. You pick one, and then you 
pass that hand to the left and get a hand from the left and you pick one and you just pick and pass. So, you know, you kind of uh, are picking what works best for you. But once you've played a couple of times, you also want to realize that you don't want to pass cards that are better for other people. So you might take a, you know, a suboptimal move in theory for you to keep the card out of someone else's hand. Right. And in, in Seven Wonders, there is that, and you have to be thinking adversarially in, in Seven Wonders, but the, the nice thing in Seven Wonders is even if you're, if you're down, you're sort of looking at what, you, what you're up to and you're sort of seeing ways that you could suddenly, you know, maybe get back in this, right? If you complete this, um, you know, this set of, of cards, uh, you'll, you'll have a, a really big bonus waiting for you at the end of the game in points. So you've got something to hold out hope for, uh, and you're making you you feel like you're making progress with with each go round even if actually you're falling farther and farther behind it still feels like there for me at least there's an emotion there there's um, an emotional and mental difference between having a game kind of just keep kicking you when you're down like look at mm-hmm. all the things you can't do because you're garbage versus yeah. a game that says hey here's a bunch of options maybe maybe you can turn it around It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, just you need a few good things to break your way. And, and in the meantime, focus on these things you can do. And, uh, you know, bit by bit, you'll get back into it. You won't. <laughs> I think I think <clears throat> one of the one of the sort of method methodologies of of comeback mechanics, I think that you see you know, far more in board games than you do in digital games. And that's that's one of the things in uh, Seven Wonders. And it's this idea that um Individual players are going to have to make moves or actions that will benefit one other player on at the table. And as long as it's a multiplayer game, that then can becomes a, a comeback mechanic. You know, that is, um, if we are playing Seven Wonders, it's, well, I don't want to pass this good card, but everybody, you know, there are three players to the left, and I'm passing left, who aren't winning. That'll probably take that card before it gets to my actual competition or in... Um, in uh let's say lords of water deep there are some cards that say like hey take a cube but you have to give someone a cube and you look around the board and you say oh okay who's losing and you give that player the cube and i i think what's what's dangerous or what what i would be concerned about when i implement those is that there's this fine line between um sort of social comeback mechanics and games that suffer from the kingmaker problem that is if you if you imbue the ability to hand out power uh, to the players um, and you're trusting them to make uh, to balance the system, um, you know you have to compete with this idea that at some point um, that could be the deciding factor, and that's at least for me is never a satisfying never a satisfying uh, proposition. Yeah, there's a there's a danger to it because I, you know, I design, a, I don't think I, I very rarely design two player games. So always in my games, I have to think of the social element, you know, in a three player game, if one person starts winning, I like to think in my little utopian mind of the game of design, well, here are the tools for the other two people to sort of close ranks, take care of the big threat. And then once equilibrium has been, you know, achieved, yeah, a new hammer, a new nail sticks up to be hammered down, right? And it all seems very nice. Like, here are all the tools and everyone will do the right thing. But it doesn't always work out that way. Um, King making is an issue. Like, you know, if two people get ahead and they sort of have a piece and then there's the third person in back, 
they might be in a position to just throw their weight or their aggression towards one of the two. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the other person kind of coasts to the finish line, not because they earned it, but because number three was dragging down number two. Um, someone pointed out to me that this is particularly interesting from uh, when you add that if you know two of the people at the table are a couple. Mm-hmm. Because some of those people handle it very well, like, well, we're not a couple here in this game. And some people are like, sorry, it's my wife, so I have to pick on you. And now, like, that just gets unpleasant in a lot of ways. Like, what? what? Wait, you know, you're a team now? Yeah. Right? You have to pick on me? Like, so there's a ton of social dynamics above and around the table that I think about, but at some point realize I can't account for all of them. So I assume that people are going to be playing to win and not just playing to spoil. But I know that's not always the case. No, and, and I think it also it is predicated on the belief that the players that are playing the game can accurately determine who's winning. And in social games that often have hidden information or hidden victory conditions, that can become increasingly difficult. Um, especially if there's multiple ways of winning or you have different uh, experience levels at the table. Um, which now brings in this whole other uh, uh, whole other aspect of of this notion that um, do players need to be aware of the comeback mechanic, or is it better to have this thing behind the system? You know, as we said with Power Grid, where it's like pretty upfront, um, but we can maybe are there are there examples where it's clever and it's sort of obfuscating that like you know we're we're facilitating competition. Uh, yeah, that I mean that gets into private versus public information. It goes back to something that Rob was saying, which is: is it important for players to have a legitimate path back to victory, or is it more important that they're having a good time and believe they have a path back to victory? Right. If you take a relatively novice poker player, they will try to fill an inside straight way too often. Right. Right. Because they believe, like, hey, if I just get an eight. I win, and it will happen just enough to justify this behavior. Right. And But the thing is, they're having a good time, and when they lose, they go, ah, I just needed an eight, right? And they, they're like, they played suboptimally, and, mm-hmm. you know, but they believed that what they were doing was going to lead to victory. And, I, you know, when you don't know the victory conditions or a lot of information's hidden, is it just fine that a person is losing – is going to lose and has no idea and is just playing along and having a good time until they get to the end and realize they lost by 40 points. That's that's fascinating. I never really thought about that, but it, it is. There is this. There is a connection between comebacks and near-miss psychology. And so near-miss psychology is this is this notion that I think is most been popularized in um, – slot machines <laughs> and, yeah. and it's and it's this notion that and you know they've hooked people's you know brains up to things and if you look at what a person's brain does when they hit a jackpot on a slot machine when they come super super close when they say oh i just needed the eight to fill that gut shot straight draw it's like 75 80 percent is effective and and so there's this idea that and I and I suspect it's also the same for viewers. And so I, I wonder I wonder if if in, in the realm of esports, 
to bring it into into the video game world, if that the um, that Cinderella story, the impossible, the the potential for the impossible comeback, um, allows for a perception. Uh, that a game is more interesting to watch than it act- actually is. Um, Rob, you're the esports guy. Yeah. How does how does it work in LOL? Uh, well, in League of Legends, they've definitely um, actually League of Legends is actually really clever about this mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's become sort of a meme within the community uh, that the answer is like, should you go for Baron? And the answer is never go for Baron. And what what Baron is is uh, it's this it's this powerful monster for for the mid into the late game uh, that's located on the map that both teams uh, can go kill. And if you go kill Baron, uh, your team gets a sizable bonus that really gives you the opportunity to suddenly uh, start pushing. Uh, basically, it, it upgrades your ability to apply pressure uh, across mm-hmm. all the lanes in the map and regain lost territory and put the other team on the defensive. And that can snowball very quickly. Suddenly you have positional advantage, you have greater awareness, the other team's sort of cornered and has to play defensively while suddenly you t- you break out of your, your hole and uh, start making a comeback. The thing is, everyone knows your, the play is to go for Baron uh, for the losing team, or, mm-hmm. or, or even a team that's that's got a narrow lead, right? And really think like this is our moment. We're gonna we're gonna like you know hammer the coffin shut. And so both teams have this incentive to go for uh, go for Baron. And it's, I guess, you know, to to it, it's a bit like the Street Fighter example. Mm-hmm. It's this thing that encourages a really risky play that viewers love. Viewers love watching a team go for a risky Baron because some of the best plays in the history of this game have been when Baron attempts go wildly, wildly wrong. The Baron itself, Baron itself, is a a dangerous monster that if you screw up uh, handling it early in the game can still inflict a lot of damage. But the real killer is everyone has to gather up in this little hole to go fight this monster. And the other team can basically drop huge area of effect spells and get a perfect engagement and destroy you. So I I think that's probably League of Legends' uh, biggest nod to to sort of of that kind of comeback. Uh, And the thing is... It sort of ties to near miss psychology because I, I think over time, like what most people have observed is it turns out going for Baron was the wrong call for either team, mm-hmm. right? Narrow lead or uh slow like or you're slightly behind and trying to make a comeback. Usually Baron's too much risk for not enough reward. But the way it plays out leaves everyone thinking, Oh, you know, if only it had gone a little bit differently that entire game would have turned. And so everyone so everyone always knows this is the bad move. It, it's sort of like Tobias Funke in Arrested Development where they tell you about having an open marriage. Uh, right. And he makes that comment about, you know, people think, you know, couples convince themselves that somehow it will save their marriage. Uh, but of course it never does. But it could work for us. And, <laughs> and, and that, I think, is the psychology of Baron. Well, and that leads into something really interesting to me because I'm a big uh, sucker for narrative in games, you know, whether it's role playing games or, you know, tabletop. And to me, we've been indoctrinated right now in our particular culture about the 
the the long odds, right? They're blowing mm-hmm. up the Death Star, yeah, or the hero down to his last gambit, and it all comes together. You know, I've often mentioned that every Harrison Ford movie, well, not now because he's older, ended up with him with every started with every weapon at his disposal and ended up him punching someone in front of a steam pipe that was leaking, right? Like it all has to be broken down and then put back together. And we talk about the, you know, the comebacks in the fourth quarter to force overtime to win or the bottom of the ninth. Like we love the story of the long odds that come together. And I think people bring that emotionally into a game they're playing. I often joke when I'm losing a game badly and I know I'm going to lose. And I'm like, well, you can't have a heroic comeback until you find yourself in this position. Right. I'm just sort of like set in the state and then I lose. Right. Like, you know, because I just know it's not going to work. But, you know, they don't do football highlight reels of, hey, here's a team that's just really good on all fronts that systemically takes apart its opponent game after game. Right. And wins comfortably by clock management. Right. Instead, they do the 10 most amazing comebacks. Right. Where you just see it and it's all about long odds and thin odds. And and we as a culture love it. It's exciting. It's narrative. It's what we look for. And and so I think people consciously, unconsciously bring that psychology into a game and they want they're looking for the game to give them that moment where they're like, oh, here it is. I see the path. I see the path to that fourth quarter comeback. And if the game doesn't provide it. It's it's being you know sort of fair like no you're out of it you know it'll be over in five minutes, um, but it doesn't feel good to people. Yeah, I I think I think that those long odds actually start at a at a very like fundamental um, game designs decisions right, and so I can think of like two two things that really come to mind, and and one is if I'm doing a competitive shooter, and I'm sorry this is a strategy podcast, but this is all I can think of is the idea of rather than having points moving into a last man standing scenario. Now, it's not a comeback mechanic in that it facilitates a mechanic. Like in when you're watching CSGO, it's not like when you're the last member of your team, you get a big bonus and your uh, health bar doubles and you shoot twice as fast. But what it does is it facilitates this long odds. It facilitates the 1v4 comeback that people love seeing. And I think as a success, uh, as a game, as a product, I think that, that that's a large part of it. And then secondly, um, a, a design decision to allow for these things would be the diff- when, uh, inter- uh, when you're looking at multiplayer uh, video games and parity and power. And we can take the example of League of Legends and, and uh, Heroes of the Storm, which uh, at face value are very similar games. I think the uninitiated would look and they would be basically the same thing. Uh, you have these teams of five magical characters and they, they fight and there's these other little monsters that they beat up. But League of Legends and Heroes of the Storm are very, very different. And and one of these things is that in Heroes of the Storm, uh, every character is basically around the same power level. The the difference in your role in the team is basically, you know, pretty equivalent. Whereas in uh, League of Legends, you have this idea that the team is going to get together. They're going to sacrifice their progression to elevate one member of their team. 
And whether they win or lose in that engagement, when they when they uh, attack Baron or whatever the case may be, it's going to allow because there's this one character that is so much more powerful. Um, him being excellent will be able to overcome their other mistakes. Um, and I think that that's why uh, uh, team battles in League of Legends are way more exciting than team battles in, in Heroes of the Storm. That's an interesting point. Because I've definitely noticed it when I watch them like as a spectator, uh, like when I compare the tournaments. Uh, there is a little more built-in drama. To, there's a sameness to mm-hmm. team fights in Heroes mm-hmm. that you don't see in League as much because in league there's the question of okay uh who's the star who's the star player they decided is going to really elevate this team and what position does he play because that Mm -hmm. that affects what he can actually do uh and so you can have even the same group of characters depending on what the teams have prioritized produce wildly different looking fights uh whereas yeah in, in in heroes there is an element of okay like once you've seen one big you know scrum against a wall in a tower you've kind of seen them all Mm-hmm. And and I and I th- I think it's important that idea of being able to identify the star player. Um, and here's the storm. The comeback mechanic is very um, rubber bandy. And by rubber bandy, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, the the gifts. The the person in behind it gets a little bit faster, and that comes in terms of you get more experience points. The lower level you are for killing things, and other experience. You know, if you're below level ten. You know, I think you get more experience points for killing creeps, and I'm not too sure they change things uh, fairly often, but you sort of win and you lose as a whole, and it sort of, like, pushes the whole team, whereas in League of Legends, uh, it is uh, the comeback mechanics, I think, are... are uh, are, are largely about uh, the distribution of the resources, and there's still some choices that the players need to make in their itemization. And so you see that um, that the tools that the losing team gets in Dota or League of Legends, uh, probably even more so in Dota, that the tools, the comeback tools, require skillful and risky choices. So I also want to talk about sort of the the question because something else that occurs to me is it really really depends on who your players are and why they're there Mm -hmm. because the thing is so if it's like if it's a casual like family board game night uh a ridiculous comeback mechanic where it's you know kind of like uh you know the mario party thing where like the game just kind of ends and mm-hmm. picks a winner and oh that's crazy uh or there's some sort of like comeback not even a comeback but like at the last minute the game decides like wow. 90% of what you've done didn't matter yeah and... i mean the longest snakes are at the end of the board and the longest ladders are at the beginning like it's it's pretty straightforward yeah, yeah that is like the ultimate sort of like here's it starts early Right. That's if you right. go down a long slide right before you get to the uh, end, it's it's demoralizing. But then you spin a four and you go up the long ladder and you're right back in it. Just playing with your emotions. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole subsection of why people want to play different games. I was leaving out, you know, party games and things like that, given that this is a strategy podcast. Um But yeah, there's some games that really focus on winning and other ones that don't focus on winning. And a lot of games that come out of Europe and have European design very carefully obfuscate who's winning until you get to the end so that people don't become demoralized. So you're just looking down going, I I think I'm doing well. 
and yeah. you're just op- you're just operating under your own realization or delusion. Um, and they can be entertaining in a way because there's either so many numbers or there's so many things or so many things hidden. You're like, I don't know. I'm just going to try to optimize every turn and then pick my head up and see how I did. What what frustrates me about that a little bit is that really does seem to favor people who are just good at doing like simple arithmetic in their head really, really quickly. Yes. Um, which is a skill, right? Like, I mean, my, like my, my girlfriend is brilliant. Can't do simple math in her head, like to save her life. Uh, but you know, she does advanced physics and math all the time. But so there's a, a lot of the Euro games sort of favor this. Are you really good at doing a ton of addition of subtraction in your head in, in a few seconds? Uh, great. You're going to have a much better understanding of where the state of play is right now than anyone else at this table. Uh, and then there's the di- there is this dynamic of, in a board game setting, if you're taking too long over your turn and working through it, you're the asshole. Because mm-hmm. you're the one trying too hard to win, or you're mm-hmm. just making this game take forever. Like We see this every year at RabbitCon. Mm-hmm. Right. Like everyone always like there's always some game that people walk away like nursing little petty resentments over because someone didn't treat enough like a game or was or was or was or was trying too hard. Uh, and that's 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 another that's something that does, I think, bug me a little bit about some Euro game design. And I see it a little bit in Power Grid because uh, it's it's very easy to sort of lose track of not so, not lose track, but it's very easy to create a situation where. Okay, uh, the person, the the people with better, faster arithmetic are going to just know the state of the game. And everyone else has got the choice of either sit there and count things out every turn or uh, just sort of play blind. But then they're not going to win. Yeah, I mean, that's just the nature of it's, you know, it's it's being a game sommelier, right? Matching matching your game to the right audience. We're talking about at the beginning, like, hey. This game really rewards people who can kind of keep track of how many tokens they have behind their screen. So if you're not into that, you know, you, you should just know ahead of time um, or, or vice versa, you know, like letting everyone know. But yeah, I mean, games, tabletop games require different skills for different games. Sometimes it's bluffing. Sometimes it's being able to project ahead. Sometimes it's card counting or, or remembering things or simple math. And that's great because then, People who can do those things have an advantage and they win and they feel good about themselves. Um, it's just sometimes, as you said, the social dynamics of three people take their turn quickly because they played the game five times and the fourth person's struggling to figure it out and they all glare at the person. Like, come on, make your move. Or they come all on. get wildly drunk and the game sort of <laughs> handicaps them that way while the one person is sober and still thinking and yeah. everyone else is just refilling cocktails. Yeah, actually, the last time I played chess was that exact situation. Our our good friend Julian Murdoch Rabbit and I were playing chess, and we both had uh, multiple drinks. This is like twelve years ago. Yeah, and I started out, and we got to the mid game, and it was all like quick play, just impulse, and I had the advantage in pieces and position. Right, I, it was just going to be a crushing victory, and I lost. And I looked down, and I was like. I'm very, very bad at chess, right? And I've never played the game yeah. since then. But um, we've sort of, it's a, sort of just a diversion of the last time I played chess. Because uh, that's a game that requires you to, there's no catch-up feature there, right? It, older games tend to be crueler games. It comes yeah. from different societies. Like, you're losing? Oh, well, study hard and play better next game. 
Well, you know, chess is chess is an interesting case because actually, like, there, there is no there is no catch up in chess. But if you're more experienced at chess, or you you know, you just have better understanding of the board, you can see possibilities that the other person just can't, which is which is kind of interesting. Now, two players of equal skill, no, it's, that that's not going to work. But it is interesting how as like a board begins to clear out a player who is seemingly behind does gain a great deal of freedom of maneuver, uh, which, which can be a little interesting, unless someone's forcing moves. But it's, it's definitely like some of the most epic comebacks I've had in gaming have been chess, but it's only, you know, th- those have only been cases where uh, the entire comeback is made possible by the fact that, you know, I was just able, suddenly having fewer pieces, I was able to concentrate on a few possibilities extending farther in the future. And the other guy was just playing turn to turn, and it, that changed the game. Uh, but no, the, the reason I brought, bring up the like who's who's playing your game and why is because I, I I think you almost have to draw a line between like not so much a comeback mechanic, but sort of the the, the thing you were talking about, David, where it's the uh, it, it's sort of the last minute decider, uh, where everything that comes before everything that comes before gives one gives one side an advantage uh let's say but somehow the the end game resolution still allows for a ridiculous comeback a, a last mm-hmm. second uh a swing of fortune uh that's 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 one situation but then there's also ways to create comeback mechanics that really favor people who just have a deeper understanding of the game right where where it's not where if you if you know the game you 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 know the alternate path or you know the way back into it uh that maybe isn't immediately apparent and i i think that's that seems that seems to me like it's two different things you have to design for uh are are you sort of designing for people who are going to be a little more uh casual about it and will be cool with just sort of uh again like a, a great deal of randomness or chance uh, on the last turn let's say versus do you want to create a game where among experienced players, there will always be the shared awareness that there is another way this can all turn. Yeah, and, and I think that's sort of a that's a parallel to comeback mechanics and isn't itself a comeback mechanic. Really, we're talking about um, this idea that uh, a game can have um, a path to victory. So that's snakes and ladders, right? That's a race. That is, we're each going to roll a die, and whoever gets to 99 wins first, right? In fewer die rolls. Um, when something like that is, you need, I think, more explicit uh, comeback and rubber banding opportunities. Otherwise, uh, you're going to, like, players are, are, are they're, they're going to quit because the, the sort of the standard deviation of a dice and what's well within sort of uh, uh, acceptable uh, random uh, expectation, ex- expected values. Uh, is probably outside the tolerance level of a player, right? So uh, in an average game, the gap can appear imperceivable, even though it's not. Um, but an, a, a game that has alternate paths to who to victory, whoever is the fastest, um, I think wraps us around to that idea of the obfuscation of who's winning. And I think the more you obfuscate who's winning the less you need a comeback mechanic to keep people involved. And if that's really what our goal is, is to keep people at the table, um, then I would say that those are two solutions to um, 
uh, the same symptom. Uh, I, I totally agree. And I never really thought about it that way in the sense that um, you want a comeback mechanic so people don't become disengaged from the game, right? Where they're like, well, I'm losing. I can't win. But it's not the type of game where I can just sort of cash out my chips and be like, OK, you guys finish it up. It's not my day. Right. And then they sort of feel trapped and sullen. And then they start making um, real bad decisions like, well, I'm just going to pick on David. Yeah. Right. Oh, they they become a distraction. Right. They become a distraction. So the more that you have no idea whether you're winning or not, or maybe you're like, I don't think I'm winning, but I don't think I'm losing. Right. So maybe mm-hmm. I can g- go for second here. And and you're OK with that, even though you you're fourth and you're going to be fourth. But you don't know that. Right. It's, it's only when everything's up there and visible and everyone can see what's going on. Do you have to give people that path to victory? Otherwise, like you said, they're, they're, they would become a distraction. They become annoying. And uh, I think that's a it's a great insight. I never thought about. Actually, Rob, do you remember the first time we played War of the Ring? We were yeah. talking about long odds. Do you do you remember the ending? At least I think it was. I the can't first remember time. which. Oh, yeah, no, I, I remember the ending. I just can't remember which side. Uh, I think it was. So it came down. So it, it came down to the the fellowship uh, at the mm-hmm. at, at at Mount Doom. Yeah, it. I think I was playing the fellowship because if it was it your was first, my game, first game, it was you, your first, first game. Person so person always plays the the dark. Yeah, yeah, the dark side because it's easier. And it came down to, okay, it, I'm going to reach into this bag and I'm going to pull out a token, and there are three bad tokens where I'll lose, and like twelve good tokens where I win. Like, I had masterfully played the game, and I drew a bad token. So it really came down to, like, two and a half hours of play, Mm -hmm. and I got a bad cut on the shuffle. And we both sort of looked at it, and you were like, yeah, I just won, but... Feels terrible. Yeah, you were like, I didn't deserve that win, right? Like, it was my first game, and I see what I did wrong, and it came down to this random tile draw, and you even had the odds... And it just didn't go your way. Like, but you, know, you were very philosophical about it because it was the kind of ending you really like because it's a story. Uh, yes, except now even years later, I feel kind of sick about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like intellectually, I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, Rob was losing. And then at the last minute, he pulled victory. I'm like, but did he? Did right? he like, really? Yeah. Did, like you didn't like throw a bunch of tokens into the bag at the last minute. No, I'd been completely focusing on the military track of just sending my Mordor hordes around to, to win that way. And I had really not been cognizant of, um, well, no, it, what you'd done is you'd sort of sandbagged and you'd left the fellowship in place for a long time. Uh, no, the token, the count that, oh, this is uh, such a good example. It's the corruption tokens. The, the marker for where the fellowship is on the map is not mm-hmm. necessarily where the fellowship is on the map. But it's easy to trick yourself into thinking, okay, so the fellowship, oh, the fellowship's only like in Rivendell. It's cool. I don't need to worry about that yet. But actually, the fellowship has been moving a lot. There's a lot of potential places the fellowship could be. It just hasn't declared its new position yet. I'm in my head looking at the place on the board thinking, oh, God, the fellowship hasn't even started. So. I'm just going to win this militarily. Mm-hmm. But then at the last second, you were like, no, actually, uh, Fellowship, I'm going to declare it's now uh, in Mordor. And actually, boop, I'm on the I'm on the track now. And at that point, I was screwed. I was like, I, I don't know what – because I'm not even sure you can do that much once the track begins, uh, that, that final track. I'm not sure. Like, I think the, 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 the bag has to be seeded that you draw these outcome tiles from uh, in advance. And then once that countdown has started – 
there's not that much that you can do to affect that outcome. I think that's the way it works. And so I've been completely blindsided and absolutely deserved to lose because I hadn't really understood the fellowship of the ring at all. Uh, and then, yeah, you got the one bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think this this story sort of isolates this other reason. Why why do we want comebacks or, or where is their place? Um, we had this idea that uh, that game took two and a half hours to play. And this idea that you deserved to lose. And what I think both those things sort of suggest, and I think this is obvious, is that there's an opportunity cost sitting down with a game. And there's a sort of an expected value. If you, if I, The longer I spend with a game, uh, the more I want out of it. And if ultimately it comes down to a die roll or I leave and I feel like, the win wasn't deserved and two years later i'm still thinking about it that's a problem yeah and i love that game mm-hmm. that just ha- that just happened to be sort of a an, an edge case that's kind of stuck with me right yeah and it's absolutely about an opportunity cost I, you know it's um what was it it's i'm trying to think of the exact quote from jesse shell who's a game designer and he wrote a book on game design and gives talks funny guy good insight i think he said make it good if you can't make it good, make it short. If you can't make it short, make it funny, right? Um, but it's sort of like if I'm going to sit down and you're like, we're going to play this 40-second game or two minutes or three minutes until the last guy finishes getting his beer and then we'll start a longer game. And it's this total random crapshoot or real time. And then, like, I lose and I'm like, ah, the game played me. I don't care. And I was like three minutes of my time and maybe I laughed or I was like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like that whole near miss thing where, right, you yeah. know, or something we we're talking about. Like, yeah, well, if I had just played that card the other way, I would have won. But OK. And you just don't you don't get emotionally involved like that. But you put down two and a half hours and then at the end, it's like the ref blew the call or, you know, there was a random pull. You're like, oh, that that didn't feel as good. I I I, I want to I think we can move just quickly into some single player stuff because that's sort of more of the realm of of davio and and i can i can think back to um rob rob has another game that uh i think um, both uh zachney and i have played uh, that is somewhere along the lines called seafall and Mm -hmm. and i i I remember early versions of seesaw so less listeners it's a it's another legacy game and so uh there's there's this notion of like the individual games, but this much larger campaign. And in earlier versions, um, and and you have to have comeback mechanics that exist persist from game to game. In earlier versions of the game, you had um, players sort of sandbagging the first half of the campaign so that they could build this engine that would just allow them to sort of become this juggernaut in the later game. And all I can think about was like, how unsatisfying those first victories would be like that player that like was, you know, felt good about their winnings now sees that the comeback mechanics and the, and the, the, the loss mitigation, you know, safety checks that you've put in there have ultimately led to their destruction, uh, half a year later. Um, yeah. You took care yeah. of that. <laughs> you I did. This is why this game took three years and I'm, I'm, I've actually turned large sections of it over to the publisher now. Right. I'm just looking at actually the very beginning and the very ending of the campaign, like testing new players to make sure they understand the rules at the beginning and then testing the end game to make sure that to this point, a random shuffle doesn't undo mm-hmm. 15 games of work. Um, 
But yes, that was a, a painful realization. And I thank you two and all my friends for proving to me that like it, like what the levers and dynamics were between winning and losing. And, you know, if you carry a lot over from game to game, then people stop seeing individual games as mattering. They're like, well, if I can take 80% of what I did in one game and move it to the next one, really all 15 games are just chapters of a larger game. And that's all I care about. And I went around and around for a long period of time trying to get that right. And I just finished a big, long play test here uh, at my house. And I feel like finally it's all working, right? There's enough. You get an advantage. You get a disadvantage. This goes back to start. This goes forward permanently. But that took forever. I, I think that's an interesting... That parallels a lot of what I see in act, in a lot of PC strategy games. Uh, because I feel like there's a psychology aspect of that, which is the moment you introduce the idea that there's this longer goal, uh, that turn to turn uh, is actually only building up towards this distant end game uh, that's out there somewhere. So in the case of Seafall, it's the end of the campaign that you don't know what's out there, but you, you kind of have the sense like everything I do is building up my my, my little my, my little kingdom for these later games, and that's going to give me the tools that I'm going to be using uh, to sort of thrive in later games. In a lot of PC strategy games, what you have is this idea of uh, just really long uh, strategy games uh, that are, you know, a campaign is meant to take, you know, like 10 hours or, or more uh, sometimes. And uh, the thing that the thing I observe with a lot of uh, like PC games that the sort of work with that in mind is they become a little bit uh they they, bec they begin to sort of lock players in on, on certain trajectories uh because what you don't like what you don't want is to repeatedly pull the rug out from under players and tell them oh yeah all that like that that progress you made and eh, that didn't really do as much as you thought uh that wasn't really as useful a as you thought because the promise you're making there is all the stuff you're building all the stuff you're acquiring is going to be a tool uh that's going to make you more powerful later on but the problem in a lot of PC games, uh, to a degree like Civilization, a, a lot of for a, a lot of like uh, grand strategy games, uh, is that if you're not on that track, uh, there's not a lot of reason to continue. But that tends to make those games, I, I think, a little less interesting because you end up in the situation where there's no reason to continue playing a game that you're not doing well in because you, you, you know how it works, right? The game's not going mm -hmm. to turn it around on you. Mm -hmm. You're not in a good position. You're not going to get more powerful as, as the game goes on. You're going to keep falling behind. So you might as well start over, but then it, it feels like once you've figured out how that game works, every game is the same. I, it's, it's exactly uh, the civilizations I think is sort of the, the, the tragic case of that where at the, the difficulty level I play, the amount of times that I restart at level 100 is astronomical. Like I hit, I hit turn 100. Do I have these resources? Have I done these things? I know the game well enough to say, if I'm not at X, Y, Z, I'm done. And so I just restart. <laughs> yeah. Well, which is interesting, which it just means that for you, it's almost like two games in one, right? Mm -hmm. Can I win? Can I win the first hundred yep. turns? If I do, I go into the playoffs. 
right? And if I if I lose the first hundred turns, then uh, my season's over, and I, I don't I don't continue. And that just comes from seeing seeing the end game, and you know, and and it's kind of funny when you talk about these strategy games or civilization games, and I face this a lot because I'm working on a number of games now that kind of do similar things. Like if I'm playing a kingdom and like in Seafall or something and, and three other kingdoms are more powerful and they can attack me, like in the real world, you, you just get the crap beat out of you, right? Like you're a weak kingdom surrounded by more powerful kingdoms and you're behind, like you're a footnote in history. Uh, you know, you're whatever your Sumerian equivalent of Luke Skywalker doesn't show up and, and save you, but that's not good in a game. So how do you put that into a game without it looking like either really like a historical or a patch or, you or know, like winning I, players feel like they're just getting oh, screwed. Yes. Like, wait, wait, wait. So because, so because Rob has been crap for five games in a row, my fleet just got sunk during a raid. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, and so lately I'm looking at alternate, like, okay, I'm not going to win militarily, but maybe I can go over here and build some temples and then my religion will spread throughout the land even as my kingdom dies, right? Like that sort of thing where like it's not a Pyrrhic victory, but like an interesting alternate path that you can take that tells a story. But a lot of times that's unsatisfying as well. So I, I, I struggle with these things kind of uh, on a regular basis. I mean, there, there, there's this uh, this this sort of trap that you can run into and that's the like – is it better to be close second for most of the game and then to pull ahead in the front? And I don't know if that's a bad thing. I mean, I can think, I can't really think of a great uh, board game example, but like Formula One is like that, right? Like you, you have to be in second to be able to use your DRS. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You have to be close behind the next guy. Yeah, yeah. And so it's 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 like, and so DRS is is this is this system that like gives your. Uh, it's a speed boost. We're just going to call it a speed boost, and and you can only use it when you're when you're when you're behind. And it's so like I mean in the in uh in a in a track there was the the Abu Dhabi race, and it has these zones, and it has two zones right next to each other. So you know uh you can have uh one racer use it to overtake the lead, and then immediately they need to defend it on this next thing, and and it's and it's an exciting part of that course um well actually motorsports came up a lot at the most recent uh practice uh conference in new york uh practice 15 mm -hmm. uh which i think is given by nyu uh yes it yeah. is yes it is and the head of the uh the american uh touring car uh series i i want to want to say it was like the imsa or something like that um actually gave a talk about how they try to uh create <clears throat> Uh, comebacks and restrain runaway winners in a uh, touring car because there they're really aggressive about it uh mm -hmm. where they will literally like weigh your car down they'll they'll use a ballast system uh so that if you've been winning too much uh well congratulations your car your car is now carrying like 30 kilos of lead uh wow. underneath uh you know underneath the seat uh basically uh, and they will keep doing it like there and it it kind of sucks sometimes because like you will see the best team out there like they had the best car, uh, you know, maybe the best driver. Uh, they'll be doing really badly in a race and, uh, you know, they'll they'll end up retiring and the driver will be standing there and he'll just be saying, you know, honestly, there's there's not much we can do. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're carrying over 100 pounds of uh, ballast 
and uh, that's that's just destroyed our performance. So we just have to see if they if they reduce it. But it was this interesting talk about this this entire concept of motorsports. You have this example of. Um, you know, on the one hand, the people want to see a show. They want to see close racing and exciting stuff like 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 David just brought up. On the other hand, there's an awareness, particularly among the teams, but also among some fans, that it should be fair, right? The faster car and the faster driver should be mm-hmm. faster. And somehow, uh, you know, just basically cutting their tires uh, isn't really, you know, isn't really a satisfying resolution to that. Well, yeah, what they've done and we talked about before is... is um uh make it harder for the person who's better to perform effectively and without knowing anything about formula one or the games or anything you're talking about like my thought was is it more interesting to just have the person who's better you know start further back right the race is a little longer for them but everything else is even and if they keep winning they just have to like well can you start this far back and still win? Can you start this far back? may not work in their particular game at all, but there are two different ways to kind of tackle the same problem. And because you're not, you're handicapping them in a different way, right? They can still be as fast, but they have more ground to cover. Robert. And I I think, I think how that would translate to video games is, is, is interesting. It's that it's, it's, you certainly, you would, you don't want to see an excellent player be restricted, be restrained, and and that's that's never it's never going to feel great. Um, what you want, what I think, at least as we've been talking, I'm more and more convinced. What you what you want is uh, to see the underdog exploit an unexpected error. Yes. Uh, not yes. Be, not be given the the just a, 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 a you know a, a little push. You want you want to see you want to see excellence from the underdog. You don't necessarily want to see, uh, yeah, someone being literally weighed down. <laughs> so I wanted to ask ask you, Rob, because this is just one last area I want I want to discuss uh, war gaming because uh, it's a that's a slightly different situation. But you have this problem uh, where in a lot of war games, as one team begins to suffer losses, their their power begins to diminish. Right, like. In advanced squad leader, you know, once once Sergeant Kelso's down, uh, you're basically like you don't have leadership. Uh, you, you've taken a big hit. Um, but you know, I know you worked on I, I know you worked on a few of the the Axis and Allies games. Uh, not so much the main one, but my my favorite. Uh, I I think you worked on uh, Pacific. Uh, yeah, which... I had a big hand. Yeah, I had a big hand at Pacific and a little bit of a role in in Europe. Yeah, and I just want to talk a little bit about this because that's that's a slightly different case where because of the theme, people have different expectations of, of how a game should work. But at the same time, I've definitely played like realistic war games that once those initial shots are resolved and one side has maybe taken a slightly lopsided loss, uh, you get that sort of runaway effect just because now you have more fi- more fire being poured onto fewer targets, and so they die faster. Uh, so I mean, like, I'm just curious what what your experience was working on war games, uh, where people expected a degree of like realism, but at the same time, nobody actually wants a situation where okay, it's a it's a two and a half hour board game that will be on an unalterable trajectory after three turns. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I'd only been designing a couple of years when I did that. I I think I I think I stand by my design choices or co-design choices. Um, I remember when we were doing Axis Now I specific, we were like, how do the Japanese win? 
right? I was the least, the, the, the like least knowledgeable historian out of the people working on it. So I, I had the role of kind of like, well, I'm the everyman. I know the, the cartoon version of the Pacific theater, but we really struggled. Like what were the Japanese trying to do and how could we give them victory conditions that felt historically plausible? Um, uh, that, that's the problem. I mean, like, I don't know if there's an answer to that. What I, especially with acts now is because it takes you like 25 minutes to set up the pieces. And then if you like the Japanese get this sort of sneak attack on the first round where like everyone defends really poorly, um, they only defend on a roll of one on a six sider. So you, the game is set up for huge amounts of the allied forces to just get wiped out. Um, but you have to decide like which ones. And if by some chance the allies in that first round roll a disproportionate amount of ones and keep their material on the board, it's kind of game over. And you've done one turn. And I couldn't tell you if we've solved that problem. The game's long enough that you might be able to recover or the Japanese are trying to get to like a victory point condition and they might go like, okay, well, I'm not going to get there given that, but I bet I can still get three quarters of the way, right? Kind of save some face and let's see what I can do with this disaster. Um, I know that the commands and color system that Richard Borg did, which was memoir 44. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And battle cry. Um, he tries to set up historically accurate. I mean, obviously abstracted and simplified, but accurate battlefields. And basically puts it like, hey, you know, uh, the allies are supposed to win this one, right? Like, that's just what's going to happen. So it's your job as the Axis to put up a better fight historically than the Axis did. And what that game encourages you to do, because the scenarios are relatively short, is play it twice, which each each person switches sides. And then you see, like, who did a better job, like, sort of combined as both the person who's got the lead and the underdog. And then you kind of look at and that is supposed to show and I think that's a good job of it, of like who is a better general in the situation, you know, given what you had. But, yeah, I mean, this is the thing I was talking about before. It's like in a battlefield, if in the beginning something goes crazy wrong and the headquarters with all of the think tanks and like the the ammo reserves blows up like, well, in the real world, that army loses. Yeah. But as a game, you're like, well, that's not interesting now. So. I, I I sort of think of this as as the tank problem, uh, in in like tactical wargaming, which is that if if the tank doesn't blow up, it's a huge like in most games it's going to be a huge advantage because it has massive firepower. It's hard to destroy. It just kind of waddles around the battlefield and, and just ruins things. Uh, but the problem is it's the scenario's balance so that if that tank is destroyed, uh, suddenly like one side has basically lost the thing that was supposed to enable them to win the scenario. Uh, and I, I, I see this a lot. Uh, and, and I think the solution a, a lot of war games seem to adopt, uh, a lot of ones that are, that are I, think, I think, really popular now, is that they just tend to be short. Right, like the Command and Colors games have a very short uh, fuse between the initial setup, and then that you have you have maybe one chance, one turn of sort of maneuvering around, and then all hell breaks loose. And in like two or three more turns, the fight's going to be over. Everything's resolved. The scenarios themselves aren't even that long. Uh, I, I think it, it's really lifted into an art form if you play the uh, Battles of of Westeros. Um, uh, Command and Colors game, which is is basically battle lore, but with a uh, Game of Thrones uh, veneer put over it. 
Uh, but but that's a situation where they 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 just don't let the scenarios uh, linger uh, that much. Uh, but I remember a lot of like older like Avalon Hill type war games. You know, they, it was meant that you were supposed to make a meal out of it. Uh, but then you just have these situations where it, it, you know, it could just be kind of a long slog as you recreated historical inevitabilities with dice and yeah. cardboard counters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it was a different time, and people wanted you know different things out of them. They wanted like real, true sort of simulations where they might know, okay, I'm probably going to lose this, but let me see what would have happened if this uh, expedition force went here instead, right? So it's more like playing a what if game. You know, once the writing's on the wall or like, let's see what happens if I just do this mad all out, you know, tank attack that's probably doomed to failure. But, you know, let's let's see what cool happens. At least that's what I would be doing. But a lot of those old Avalon Hill games, I mean, Avalon Hill as a company making those hasn't been around for uh, 16 years. No, 17, 18 years. Um, So we're talking a whole generation ago since the later games were made. Um, so it's several generations since they were in their heyday. You know, as as we wrap up, um, you know, David, I I, I kind of want to ask you because because you're a little more familiar with the with the PC strategy space as well. Uh, do you think it's a problem that we have so few examples to really talk about successful uh, models for this in, in PC strategy, or do you think that's just a difference between how people play strategy games on on the PC versus how they play them with other people at a table? Ooh, I, I mean, is it a problem? That's such an open-ended question. Is it a problem? Okay, here, I'll give you an example of why it could be a problem. I think that um, it, it limits accessibility. I, I, I wish there were more strategy games. I wish there were more PC games. Um, there are tons, but there aren't a lot of what we're talking about. And there's not, there's not a great... Um, a great you know tabletop or, or strategy tactics game that you and I can sit down and, and, and play and I, I even tried to drum up some support for a Blood Bowl League and that failed um, and I think that that this is a big cause and and so I, I feel as though if we if we could figure it out as a as a as a group as a designer I'm using a little we um then we could pull more people into the hobby. Um, there are some some great uh, studios out there that sort of circumvent the issue. I can just think of, you know, ubiquitous. I'll mention Paradox, um, but multiplayer, you know, Hearts of Iron. I, d- I just don't see it being a thing that's going to you know take off like Minecraft or anything like that. Um, and I'd like to see it, but. Uh, uh, you know, for for the current market, it's probably okay. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, probably for esports, it's a it's an issue too. I I don't think anyone really wants to see snowball victories. I think people want to want to see those long odds. Um, uh, you know, when when in in sports, when you have a massive favorite, um, people will tune in. People will buy the pay per view. Only for so long. Um, you know, I follow MMA, and if you look at, like, the longest dominating MMA champions over the past decade, um, near the end of their sort of careers, when they've had 
10, 12 title defenses, their pay-per-view numbers were abysmal um, because no one really wants to pay $60 to see someone dominate. I mean, I guess Floyd Mayweather probably is the exception. People pay to see him just dominate, but eh. Yeah, people want a story. And as I was saying earlier, the story of uh, someone who's better being efficient and then achieving a sizable victory is sort of like impressive at the beginning and then it just becomes the new norm and it's it's really not that exciting. There's no drama to the person who is expected to win, win one comfortably. Yeah. Oh, that masterful shot clock or the masterful like play clock manipulation. Like everyone's really excited about that. No, they want to see 40 yard runs and right. And, and trick plays and stuff like that. I think this is probably one reason why so many people like just hate the Patriots. Uh, in addition to the fact that Bel Bill Belichick can be kind of an off-putting person, and there is all the all the smoke that's always around that team. Uh, although that's also partly a function of the team kind of being unpopular among their peers as well. But I, I think just overall, if you look at this entire span, people just got really tired of watching the Patriots just be better than every team they played against and we get like I live in the TV market and I'm not I'm not really a Patriots fan but it was really boring to tune in and watch like okay it's it's Patriots Jets oh yep that's exactly what I thought it was going to look like yep how much long, I, how many more weeks of football yeah I mean and that and that's the thing is I I am a New Englander so I'm a Patriots fan and also I'm a game designer so I recognize how hard it is to be consistently good with all the variables they face year after year and you know an NFL player's career is three or four yeah. years and it's constant turnover I actually think that a percentage of and I don't know what it is but a percentage of Bill Belichick's disdainful um reaction to the press is a bit of a an act and I think he just honestly hates that's part of his job and it cracks me up as some sort of bizarre performance theater but if he wasn't my coach I would hate him for it yeah. And I would hate and I would hate Brady for being you know like the pretty boy and, and trying to argue calls and all this but to me, as someone who spent quite a bit of time, perhaps too much, looking at, okay, the team I root for, are they really cheating, right? Are these people that I want to get behind or are they doing things? And I look at it and I'm like, I feel like a lot of the fire that's directed at them is exactly what you said, which is, oh, them again, another good team, another AFE, you know, AFC East title. Like, just take them down. It's how I felt about the Yankees as a Red Sox yeah. fan. Well, right? and there's also the growing dismay of, it doesn't feel like because the, there's so much parody in the league. It starts to feel like there has to be something else going on because no team could have this record for for this long. Sure, right. uh, but and yeah, um, I will say uh, Patriots games get very interesting if they're a little bit behind and late in the fourth quarter. Uh, then suddenly it's it's interesting because then it's then it's a cool comeback mechanic because uh, then the Patriots offense goes into that creepy preternatural overdrive mode where, where suddenly Tom Brady just becomes like twice as accurate twice as you know throws twice as hard uh everyone's hands suddenly turn to glue that's when it gets interesting yeah well not recently but yeah. anyway let's not yeah. turn this into a total football we can have a football conversation another time yeah uh yeah no I I just I I just sort of think when I look at <clears throat> like the the PC space I, I think what frustrates me a little bit is um Perhaps it's it's too much of there's too many games that are emulating civilization uh, and sort sort of have that same problem, uh, David, that you mentioned, where pretty early you have a sense of whether or not the game is worth continuing with, 
but then you lose the, the games all sort of lose the ability to surprise you because they do follow the sort of uh, well-rehearsed arc uh, and you kind of know where it's headed. And that, that is, that, that is really sort of disappointing. And I, and I think one problem I have with a lot of the way PC strategy games are designed and I'm not sure it's inevitable. Uh, it might be. So many of them are designed to be played by yourself against an artificial intelligence. Uh, and they're meant to be really long. And so they're designed to make sure the player feels good on that journey and feels good at the end. And that sort of encourages designing for certain inevitable outcomes. I think the genius of Paradox Games is that they, they allow you to constantly recalibrate your expectations and what you're trying to accomplish so that you have a reason to stay in, even if you've completely thrown away your game. Uh, but by and large, I, I think a lot of a lot of PC games have have this problem, where they they don't they don't encourage the player to continue playing in hopes of a surprise because most of them have been tuned around sort of predictable outcomes if you follow a predictable path. Uh, so like the Total War games, a lot of them, for instance, sort of you start expanding, you get a little more powerful, uh, that enables you to expand a little more, then you're a lot more powerful, and it goes from there. Uh, now, they, they've done some interesting pushback uh, lately, but I, I just think it, it, it is a little bit of an issue that you don't have quite enough um, opportunities for games that create the, the, uh, the strategy game equivalent of the fourth quarter comeback. Right. Yeah, and I and I I think that largely comes down to um, the market decisions, right? So one of the other things you have, to, you have to realize is that so for that for that magical world where a comeback is given to you not by getting the the ubiquitous sort of blue shell or speed boost, but by presenting you with the opportunity to exploit a mistake from the winning player, um, that presupposes that the player has. Um, has has the ability to or have they learned and that um i think with a lot of pc games and a lot of just you know commercial games um the way that balance works is um it's it, it feels like there is a there is a fear to allow a player to lose early and so what happens is is that even in a game like xcom the player can make bad choices and still make it through. And then, so if we're saying that, we'll do like, well, I'll continue with XCOM, that the majority of XCOM players are going to make it through the first four months, no problem. And then they're going to start making resistance. Now, we, we can't, as a designer, expect that, that they're going to be able to come back on the sixth month, you know, all of a sudden they've magically learned how to stop making those like early mistakes. They've, we, they've all of a sudden learned not to trigger multiple enemies at once or not to just run in completely dire differently directions or only bring in shotgun guys. We can't do it, right? That's, that's irrational. And what happens is, is that means that sort of takes away that tool. And all we have is these sort of behind the, behind the, the, uh, the scene sort of uh, number manipulations. And, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised, right, if, if 2K wants to sell XCOM 
and they want to sell XCOM expansions, they will simply balance the game so that the players win. And then it's up to marketing to sort of message, okay, if you really want to play XCOM, all you hardcore people who are listening to Three Moves Ahead, you have to play on hard. That's that's actually yeah. the real XCOM. Um, and it's it's uh, it's tough. And it's it's in, in my line of work in the free to play mobile space. It's 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 even exacerbated of the like you can't let people lose. You have to just let them win. But then it can't also just be boring and predictable. Yeah. Uh, so I think that'll do it for our discussion of, of comebacks and uh, and preventing. Oh yeah, we we I think the runaway winner is a, a good way to sum it up. And and we we did this topic once before, uh, although this time we're focusing a little bit more on the uh, on the losing player. Uh, but I think I think we'll leave it there. Uh, I'm sure it'll come up more as we uh, revisit some some other strategy games uh, in in the coming weeks and months. Uh, David, Rob, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. Never a problem. Anyway, that does it for this week's episode of Three Moves Ahead, uh, which is produced by Michael Hermes and hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. We're posting this episode a little late this week uh, due to a few scheduling conflicts, uh, which happens a lot. We should be back on a normal schedule next week. And uh, we should have some good things uh, in the can ready to go over the holidays. Uh, So thanks for your patience and hope uh, it was worth waiting for and that you'll enjoy our upcoming episodes. Uh, We'll be back next week with another edition of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.